0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Labors of Love podcast. For today's episode, we're going back to one of our favorites from season one. Check it out. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey, everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love Podcast. Today, I have someone very special with me. She is a therapist, a consultant, a trainer, the founder and owner of Rooted Compassion Counseling and Consulting. I have with me, Amy Stanger Sullivan. How are you today? Good, Shonda. How are you? You know, I'm doing all right. I cannot complain. It good. doesn't look good anyway. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so I'm very, very thankful um, that you are here with me and we are going to jump in. So customary to what I normally do, I want to start by asking you, what is your labor of love?
1: Well, first of all, I really appreciate being here. So thank you very much for having me. Um, My labor of love is walking alongside people as a counselor or a friend or um, a trainer, perhaps, um, as they create a sense of felt safety. And then being there as they begin to heal and grow and dream and blossom from that core of
0: having felt safety. Amazing. Um, So amazing. Um, I think I have uh, a lot of those interests and passions as well. Can you tell the guest a little bit about what you mean when you say felt safety?
1: Yeah, because it's different, isn't it, from it's not the doors locked, so I'm safe. It's mm-hmm. really a series of um, indications, perhaps, from our autonomic nervous system that our uh, fight, flight, or freeze responses are settled Um Typically, when we have felt safety, we're either with another human being that we feel um, safe and secure with, or we have enough of that in relationships that we can move into other parts of our life with that sense of connection and felt safety to create, to produce, to relax, truly relax and rest. Um, to be playful with ourselves or with others, that sense of felt safety for me really is the basis of everything beautiful that happens in our lives.
0: That was so well said. And as you were saying it, something that came to my mind is I thought about my children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have the twins who just turned four and I have my son who's 10 and I thought about, you know, how different they are in their ability to feel safe without me or their dad Mm. and how, when you talked about having enough of that to be able to feel relaxed and kind of safe without another person being there, that is such a fundamental difference between my son who can regulate and play and do things without being very close to us. And the girls who can go much shorter periods of time without seeing us, in playing but then they have to come back it's like they almost have to come back and reset yeah they have to look at us they have to see us they have to yeah. be near us and then they can go play again and that's what yes. I thought of when you said that can you talk to about talk to that a little bit
1: yeah it's interesting and and it's developmental so I'm curious if your son was similar to them at age four oh,
0: absolutely
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: and so um you know you know this. I was a massage therapist for many, many years, and uh, had a midlife revolution, and went back to school <laughs> and got my master's in counseling. But the um, I I still own Baby's First Massage, and I teach other professionals like nurses, midwives, OTs, PTs, um, to teach parents how to do massage on their babies. And while I was, um, studying really the science behind infant massage and, um, learning more about that as I grew in that profession, I learned about something called the polyvagal theory, which is the science. I always refer to it as the science behind attachment because I learned it from an infant perspective. So. What we know about infant massage is, yes, some of the strokes that we do on the babies is really good, but what we're really building is the social connection. So teaching parents the um, cues that babies give, especially because they don't have words. So Mm. everything that they tell us is in the tone of their sounds, sometimes cries, sometimes sounds. And the way that they make eye contact with us, or don't, the way they um, tense or soften their body with us. Um, And so paying attention to those kind of cues allows us to be responsive to them and understand their needs. And when babies are born, they need a lot of that connection that physical touch connection the face-to-face connection and then developmentally as we grow that changes and what's really interesting and one of the things that drove me into counseling is that um, I was looking at teaching parents infant massage to build good mental health for the babies and the parents and realizing that so many of the parents that I was teaching didn't have good mental health in their childhood and in their infancy. Mm-hmm. They didn't get a lot of the face-to-face contact. They didn't get a lot of responsiveness from their parents. And it really made me step back and go, wow, I I want to be able to serve multiple populations I don't just want to be supporting mental health through infant massage. I want to be supporting the mental health of parents and adults as well, because if we don't get those needs met, so if your twins come to you repeatedly and you're not giving them the um, social engagement and attachment cues that they need, either from eye contact or a hug or a kind voice um, especially a kind tone in your voice, um, that they're then missing something that they might bring to their adulthood. And that can then impact their adult
0: relationships. So that is, yeah, you just said so much. Um, And it's not (laughs) that we don't have these conversations, but every time it's so good. And a couple of things that... um, that stood out to me that I was thinking um, when you said that is, man, this should not be something that someone has to find. Mm-hmm. This information, this, this specialty, this, this is so fundamental to how we grow, mm-hmm. right? How we learn who we are. Our yes. self-perception, our mental health, our ability to connect with others throughout our lifespan. Yes. So, you know, my thing, I I appreciate what I've learned and most of what I've learned about polyvagal theory, I've learned through you. Mm. And I appreciate you being able to kind of really, really help me understand it through training, um, but also through our friendship
1: mm-hmm. and
0: my work in developmental and relational trauma and the overlay that those yes. have. It's yeah. so tremendous. And thinking that, you know, I thought back to when I was having both, well, all of my children and, you know, I definitely have friends who work in uh, the prenatal world Mm -hmm. and um, postpartum world. And we have some things that are offered to us. Like I was offered to work with a lactation specialist Mm -hmm. to help me and my child be able to um, connect in an effective way in regards to breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. But why are they not offering infant massage Mm -hmm. (laughs) and understanding how to connect when we start the process of having a child? You know what I mean? So that's Mm -hmm. one thing. It's just like, man, there are things that exist that help people to connect with their children in an effective way. And so I'm glad that people are hearing this because I know there are tons of people who think infant massage is a luxury, like we think massages Mm -hmm. are a luxury for us, Mm -hmm. you know, that once a quarter self-care thing that we do, or every birthday or Mother's Day, you know, oh, well, why would I do that for my child? So thank you so much for, you know, helping us relate that. And can you give us examples of your experience with Polyvega with your children? and Ugh. how what that kind of looks like. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: interesting because when you were talking about your kids, um, I was thinking about mine as well. My daughter um, from an extremely early age could um, play by herself happily. And um, we had a very connected relationship. I was with her a lot and and it was a very strong attached connection. And I thought, Oh, well, that's why she, you know, can do what she does. And then along came my son who, um, it took him a really, really long time to, um, be comfortable having space between us. So, um, I remember just when he was little and I would say like, go upstairs and get this for me. And he would be terrified to do it. And I would have to sing so that he could hear my voice. So I would say, oh. well, I'll sing. So you can hear my voice and go get it. And so he would do that as long as he could hear me to be sure of me. Um, yeah. And, and that was something that um, really some, not, I didn't sing all the time, <laughs> obviously, but there are pieces um of him checking back in with us that happened for a much longer time than I thought it would. like going to school every year at the beginning of the school year was really hard. Sunday nights were hard because he didn't want to get up. He knew on Monday morning he would have to leave us. Um, uh-huh. And I think he was starting seventh grade and changing schools, a big change. And he didn't give a lot of indication that it was hard for him. And I'm like, okay, like tomorrow's the first day of school. Maybe we're okay. And I remember being in bed reading and out of the corner of my eye, I saw him appear at the door to the bedroom. And I thought, okay, like he still needs this little bit of something. So I like pulled the covers up and I was like, come on, buddy, hop in. So that we could, he just needed to connect and talk about school and what it was going to be like and, um, you know, what, what that was going to look like for him. Um, so yeah, those are some examples of just, it's
0: just the small things. It's so good. Like, I think this is a really good thing to talk about. Uh, think pandemic, right? right. <laughs> you don't have to think pandemic. Really. Right. <laughs> right. But in the midst of this, I have experienced this personally, but I've also seen several posts from like social media friends mm-hmm. of their children who are what they would consider beyond the age that this would happen coming into their bedrooms, mm-hmm. you know, to sleep with them or making mm-hmm. pallets on the floor, Just Mm -hmm. to sleep in the room with them, it has happened um, to me with all three of my children. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, the main thing is, you know, we create, I think, in our minds, often very, very much based on our own lived experiences and the stories that we tell ourselves based on culture and all these things about what certain ages and what are appropriate behaviors, what appropriate behaviors for certain things. And so I can just. See, so many people who would have told that thirteen-year-old, I guess you are in seventh grade. Yeah, I boy, don't I go to bed, right? Listen, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Hey, it's cool. You're fine. You know, you've right. been in school seven more years. You know, it's okay. <laughs> or you know, they're tired. But what I heard and what was so endearing about your story, across the board, from having a child you had first who developed a certain way of existing in the world and yeah. then having a child after that, who existed in the world differently, mm-hmm. that there was no judgment. She wasn't better than him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't better than her. It was just different. And right. when he had a need, he knew that he could come to you with that need without shame. And that is so huge. And the singing, we do it all, you know, yes. it's like yeah. you go into the bathroom and get a piece of tissue. I'm scared. Right. <laughs> it's like, I'm right here, can you still hear me? Mommy's talking to you, you know, yes. or when they are like almost at the tissue and pop back out and say, "Can you see me? <laughs> it's like yes. you're right yeah, so right there, you know, but yeah. it is that checking in, and mm-hmm. when we meet that with shame or condemnation or a scowl or a harsh tone of voice, what does that communicate to a child?
1: Mhm, yeah, I always I looked at parenting as okay, I have this being um who I love, who has needs. And I have agreed to meet those needs. That's the contract as their parent. And um, I have to decide the best way to meet their needs. And um, I know I'm not going to meet all their needs. Like It's just physically impossible to meet all of the needs. And the more kids you add in the mix, the more needs there are. And it's impossible to meet all those needs, but I'm going to do my best to meet their needs with as much loving kindness as I can and hopes that they grow up with most of their three-year-old needs met and most of their four-year-old needs met and most of their five-year-old needs met or whatever age so that they don't grow up to be a 40-year-old man Say who's terrified on Sunday nights to get up and go to work the next day, because had we met his needs differently, I think we would see a very different seventeen-year-old than we see right now.
0: Girl, I'm about to pass the offering plate. Listen, <laughs> you have <laughs> that is so good. I I I get this. Yeah, but I have never framed it in that way. Even in my mind, and that was gold, Amy. Yeah. That was gold. Good.
1: Because
0: I think about cuz what I was thinking and, you know, a question I was going to pose or just part of this conversation is part of I'm not trying to villainize parents at all, myself or anyone else, because I, what I was going to say is when we did not have our own needs met, and we had such a deficit. It's difficult to meet someone else's. Yes. But in the way that you framed it, I it, it just really began to kind of solidify this in the sense of a parent with a, a three-year-old who never had their three-year-old needs met don't even understand what it feels like to have yes. that need met. Yes. It is still missing.
1: They also and don't even know what the need is. They don't know what it is. They don't know what the need is. And let me just make this really clear right now. I have not always had a nice tone of voice with my children. I have <laughs> lost it with my kids. They have plenty of unmet needs. They have heard plenty of tone from me. And and so it's, it was an, a bigger frame that I was trying to work from. And I was human inside of it because I I'm the youngest of 10 kids. I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of my needs weren't met. My mm-hmm. basic needs were met. But not only was I the youngest of 10 kids, but I lived in a family with trauma after trauma after trauma. And man, my parents were just struggling to try to meet the needs of the person who was in crisis. Mm -hmm. So when I was two and a half, my sister was in a major car accident with a traumatic brain injury. Um Upon my birth, my brother, just older than me, eighteen months older than me, was born with a lot of um learning disabilities and and uh, physical struggles. so you know the time and attention has to go where the greatest need is, and I get that, but that also um developed in me some patterns of functioning for survival that. Um, you know, help me survive then, and like you said, you know, some of those needs weren't met, and so um, here I am as a parent of um, a nine-year-old girl, and I, I that's when I started to go off the rail. I was like, I don't know, like she's starting to talk back to me, and this is not. I am not having a kind voice reaction to her sass, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, she and I definitely had, she went from this little girl who could play by herself for hours to this young woman who was developing her own strong sense of herself. And that's where I went, I don't really know what to do now. Right. So she and I have struggled through it together and, um, you know, we both are committed and in it. and and trying. And when you asked earlier about polyvagal theory with my kids, I remember when um, she was younger and she would say, I, you know, it's that thing of like, Hey, clean your room. Okay. By two o'clock, I want your room clean. Right. All these encouragements with this nice voice and it ends up in I said to clean your room. And then she's just a puddle on the floor crying. And I'm mm-hmm. why are you yelling at me? And I'm like, I'm not yelling at you. Like I can give you increase in volume, right? That's <laughs> what I thought was yelling. And I realized as I learned about the polyvagal theory, because uh, the tone of voice that we use and hear is so vital to how our autonomic nervous system responds and the way we Um, culturally understand the responses of the autonomic nervous system are as fight, flight, or freeze. So I would have this tone with her and that's what I realized like, Oh, she's responding to the tone. And so we started to then interact with each other by letting each other know, Hey, your tone of voice is hard for me to hear. And Mm -hmm. we would say the word, ouch. Ouch. So if she would speak to me in a way where the tone of voice was bothersome. I would say "ouch" and vice versa, and sometimes that worked, and sometimes it made us both more irritated. Uh, but we were both in it, you know, working on on that. And what I realized—How old
0: was she when you started that? If I can ask, when you all uh, developed gosh. that common language?
1: Um, I'm gonna say maybe she was fifteen or sixteen. Mm -hmm. But I think that language could start much earlier. And and I remember when they were little, like, you know, kids whine. I remember telling my kids, like, I can't hear you when you use that voice. Which was my way of trying to be kind instead of saying stop whining, which Uh gives them no direction on what to do. So I would say to them, it's, I'm having a hard time hearing you when you use that voice. Can you use your regular voice? So maybe that's the three-year-old version of you know, what we did at 15 or 16, which was ouch.
0: Well, I'm adding that to my repertoire because let me tell you, <laughs> please do. Scratch your hands down a chalkboard all day. Yes. And I'm fine. Whine and I want to punch you in your face. Mm-hmm. I can, it it aggravates my entire literally my body. I yep. get visceral responses to whining. And it's interesting because, like you said, it gives them no alternative. Yes. For me, I I know, especially with my son, stop whining but that doesn't tell them what to do Mm -hmm. and so not exactly the same words but I will say to to my girls especially mommy really needs you to use your regular voice
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) right and that then directs them to something and it's it's so interesting because one of my daughters will say and and I'm not whining
1: yeah
0: (laughs) and I'm not whining
1: yeah she knows
0: she does um And you said something I just want to go back to really quick. And you said, you know, when we were talking about those unmet needs, if we had unmet needs at three, four, five, right? We have children then three, four, five, not only are we, we don't know what those needs are. And when we don't know, we either ignore it or we make it up. Right. So not ignore, you don't know it's there. You don't even know to meet it. But what I also see happening is that three-year-old need gets translated from a very adult brain. Mm. And then we adultify, if that's a word, yep. the need of this child based on our understanding of the world as an adult, yes. not as a child. And I see that happening so much. I truly believe that in part, that is how we get the over-sexualization of children Yes, because the need they have for play and um, Adventure, and it's another word I'm trying to think of that I can't... Um, Tactile just, stimulation, yeah, all of just it. all of these things yes. that they have, and they're learning through observation and, and all of these things. Well, because we missed so many of those developmental health and safety things when we were young, then we kind of look and say, well, this must be the need they're trying to meet when that's not it. And so I just mm. wanted to go back and say that you know, I think that can be um, insightful for yes. a lot of people across the board, but especially people who are parenting during the pandemic, because parenting looks different right now. Yes. So many of us who are not accustomed to having to meet all of the needs of our children. Mm-hmm. We had schools to help us. We had child care providers to help us. We had outdoor activities <laughs> to okay. help us. Right we had now, breaks. Oh, we, we had, had breaks. Break. girl, girl, girl. girl. <laughs> I literally said to Jay, last night, I said, man, we need a date night. And that has nothing to do with going out. We just need to be alone together, which we have not had. And how long is it? Eight weeks now? It feels like
1: about 20.
0: It does. We can tag in and out. I have had alone time myself. He has had alone time himself, less than I have. But we have not had it together. And my son had his first really big meltdown of the pandemic probably about two weeks ago. And okay. we had I had to do all the things that I knew. I mean, I'm not lying. I I had you in my head. I had several people mm-hmm. um, <laughs> about all of these things. I had to tag in therapist Shonda because mom Shonda just felt inadequate. And anyway, we got him safe in his body enough. when we finally got down to it he was able to say i don't want my sisters anymore i want to be an only child Mm. and it's like okay okay you wish your sisters weren't here you want to be an only child because if you were an only child what i would get you and dad Mm -hmm. not just one of you and it's like okay he we but how can you know and he in the his mind his natural go-to is he was resenting his sisters in the moment mm-hmm. because if it wasn't for them being young and needy yeah. <laughs> you know then one then we would be able to spend time together just the three of us like it used to be instead of them always pulling one of us away and mm-hmm. I didn't catch that at first don't get me wrong you know I said well we will be more intentional right mm-hmm. to make sure that I can come and be with you or I'll go with him and dad can come and he's like I want you both yeah like and I was Oh, at the same time, that totally made sense. Yeah. I'm tired of sharing my husband too. <laughs> right, right. Everybody's tired of sharing. Like, look,
1: yes, y'all,
0: can I have him? And it's like because they're not sleeping well. Yes, right. So I'm sharing him even at night. Yeah, you know, and there's one of us has to go. Yeah, it's a lot.
1: Yeah, there's the there's our own nervous system that um may be active because we're in a pandemic where we might be nervous about money coming in, food, uh, what is the world going to look like in a week or in a month or three months or a year. But we also have what maybe I'll just refer to as the cultural autonomic nervous system that we are all tied into the impact on our culture. And even if, you know, like I'm still working, my husband's still working, the kids are in our house, you know, we don't have an incredible stress of having little kids that we have to teach. You know, the expectation is that the kids are going to, at their ages are going to take care of it. We're here to help, but that they're, that's their primary job right now, right? All the things, um, in terms of food, clothing, and shelter are in good shape for us. But I still feel the cultural nervous system that is in this state of flux. And so, of course, our kids are going to feel it too. You know, we're all going to feel it. And so we're all searching for this sense of felt safety, which is now different Because you used to could go have a date night with Jay and get a sense of felt safety that way. Your son could have some time with his friends or with the two of you or have some separation and have a felt sense of safety that way. And we're not, we don't have that right now in our system. And and this is part of what I feel like I want to sort of shout from the rooftops is that we have an opportunity to understand how to meet the need of our felt safety. For years, we've been putting a band aid on things and calling it self care. You know, mm-hmm. get a glass of wine and get in the bathtub. What if that isn't what creates a sense of felt safety for you? Mm-hmm. So you can't go by a prescription of somebody else telling you you need to do three yoga classes a week or you need to, to take a bath or you need to get your nails done. No, it's not a prescription that comes from outside of you. It's an inward examination of what creates a sense of felt safety. And I will say, and you and I know this, both know this, the number one, um, thing that will give us a sense of felt safety is an authentic connection to another human being
0: yes
1: and when we can create and build those relationships in our lives that's really the platform of felt safety that takes us into the other realms of our life and part of our work you know, the work that we do as counselors, the work that we do as trainers, and especially for you and I doing it from a trauma perspective is helping people identify how and where to get that. You know, and you and I both work with people who are still living trauma. It's not that they had trauma and now they're just trying to deal with what happened in their past. Some of our, our clients and are, um, the people that we speak to are still living trauma. And so every day, every day. And so that, uh, job, our job then becomes to be that initial safe person who holds the space of compassion for them so that they see what that is. They get a feel for that. And, you know, it feels scary at first. you've never had it, it feels vulnerable and scary and too much. And so, you know, being able to titrate that as a counselor and then helping them start to build that outside in their lives, that's really what I love to do. And I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. I get to do on a daily basis and I'm still (laughs) trying to figure out how to do it better on zoom. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, there there's so much. I mean, and you're exactly right. We hold the hope for people. Yes, that these this felt safety is possible because yes. some people don't know that it it exists. And I think for us during this time, us really, I mean, every human in, on the planet, we as humanity during this time, I think we are being forced to face or ignore. The very thing you talked about. So, having authentic, genuine connection, genuine connection with another person based on who you truly are, is such a foundation to felt safety. And so many of us have learned to hide or not show our authentic selves mm-hmm. for many, many reasons. And a lot of the ways we used to do that has been taken away from us. Yes. And so now we, that is terrifying, yes. right? And in addition,
1: a lot of the things we used to hide behind have been taken away from us.
0: Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. All of that. I used to have a recurring dream um, of being naked in public. Mm. Somehow not starting that way, but having my clothes ripped off or a towel ripped off and being naked. I mean, for years... Years I had Mm. some version of this dream, and it's so interesting that I now understand, in part, that had nothing to do with my physical body. It was me. Yes, I I had learned to hide behind. I had a mask for every occasion. I was a shapeshifter. (laughs) I mean, you name it was and and seamless. Like, are you kidding me? Whatever. (laughs) But man, the thought. And it's so deep that right now, people, the things we could hide behind, they're being taken away from us. Yes. But then you mentioned Zoom. And what I, as I was processing my, this feeling, I didn't have a name for it. I sat with it for a while. I tried to recognize where it was in my body. I did my whole shape, color, size, all this stuff. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I realized is I don't spend as much time on Zoom as you do mm. um, for clients, but it was like what really did it for me was a family meeting. Um, We, you know, every couple of weeks with my husband's family, we check Mm, in on Zoom mm -hmm. and it wasn't, it wasn't the call with the family that did it, but it was when I recognized it, that's it. Mm. Now that I am naked and okay with it and unashamed, the depth that I want to connect with people cannot be satisfied with shallow meetings Right. all the time. Yeah. And what I realized about Zoom is Zoom was presenting me with the option to do digitally or virtually what I had been trying not to fall back into and that's put forth what I wanted people to see only. Mm. So with Zoom, you can literally be naked from the bottom down. Ain't nobody going right. to know. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Throw a little mascara on, <laughs> put a little lipstick on, put a scarf on. You good. And now people it's kind of like this joke on social media, like work up top, PJs on the bottom. Yep. You know? And it's like you, you find the one area in your house that's not cluttered and that's where you set up shop. You can create within this little box, this, this image of perfection, you know, whatever backdrop you want people to see, it's there and you pre- present what you want, but your whole house, your whole life, everything could be in shambles, but no one could know. And I think what I started to discover for myself is it was scary. What it's mm. like is if, let's say I struggle with alcoholism, right? Which and i don't, in recovery. but yeah. I don't, right. I don't. <laughs> But let's say I was in recovery and all of a sudden the world changed and they said, you got to live in a bar. Mm -hmm. I, I have the strength. I had, I have built a muscle that helped me stay away from alcohol, but you put me in a bar all day, every day that, that just becomes very challenging. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I felt. It's like the superficiality that presents us that's presented and how we are communicating and things feels very much like a bar to me Mm. not that I necessarily want to go back but so much energy is fighting not taking a sip or not just putting forth a face yeah you know clothing myself instead of being naked and letting that be okay and so that's one of my discoveries I would love for you if you can take this example or start fresh but talk to us a little bit about The polyvagal theory, for those who may have some knowledge, because I think all of what I was just talking about, I I know how it's related to the polyvagal theory (laughs) and my mapping and all of that stuff, but you have such a genuine, authentic, and easy to understand way of talking about that. So, can you just talk to my guest um, and me a little bit about polyvagal theory and how that works, especially now during a pandemic?
1: Sure. Sure, so the polyvagal theory was um brought into the world by Stephen Porges, who is a um, he's a doctor he's a res- yeah, i think he refers to himself as a research scientist he's on staff at the University of uh North Carolina in Chapel Hill and at indiana university um, and I believe he runs the Kinsey Institute, which is a part of i u and studies trauma. And, um, yeah. So the polyvagal theory tells us that in mammals and human beings are mammals, our vagus nerve is, um, created differently so that not only do we have this fight, flight or freeze response to danger, we also have the ability to do something I refer to as flock, which is to look to other people to create a sense of safety. It's important to understand that the vagus nerve is sort of our um, the part of our nervous system that is constantly on guard, constantly assessing for safety or danger not only physically, but emotionally as well. And that's the part that is really important for us to understand, because I don't think that people realize that our autonomic nervous system, and that's the vagus nerve is a part of our autonomic nervous system, that it gets fired up when we feel emotionally unsafe, much like if we are feeling unsafe because suddenly there's a snake in the house or something. It's the same system firing in our body. What's different about mammals. Um, and this is what the polyvagal theory tells us is that we first look to other humans or mammals. Cause I might look to my dog for a little help. If I'm feeling emotionally or physically unsafe, we first look to other humans or, uh, other animals in our environment to create safety. When we get a sense of feeling unsafe, either physically or emotionally, we always do that. There is a hierarchy of responses. Um, every human goes through it. The, the hierarchy is we look to flock. If we perceive that that isn't there, then we look to flee. If we decide or, or our body sort of decides for us that we can't flee, then we'll fight. And if fighting feels like not an option for us, then we will freeze. So that's the, the series of actions or uh, looks that we will take. We do this completely unconsciously. This happens at the brainstem level. So one of the reasons I love talking about this is because once we bring this information into conscious awareness, then we can start to work with the responses of our vagus nerve instead of against. And what happens is that the vagus nerve gives us bodily sensations that we assign a feeling to, right? So, um, when I'm anxious, I know I'm anxious because it feels like there are a thousand blue butterflies throughout my torso that are flapping their wings at an amazing speed. That's that's my body signal to tell me I'm feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. If I'm feeling afraid, it's usually a deeper um sensation in my gut. If I'm feeling sad, it's usually for me, um, some, um, hurt in my heart or some heaviness in my heart area. If I'm feeling happy, I generally have an all over kind of glitter feeling. Like if I could draw this, I would have a glitter pen that would be all over. So Mm -hmm. the, the vagus nerve And the brainstem are what caused those sensations in our body. When we pay attention to those sensations, we assign a feeling word to it. And then from there, we don't have to act on the feeling, which is what I think most people are afraid of when it comes to their feelings. We just have to acknowledge the feeling, sit with it, maybe share it with another. And then that's a really good time to bring in the brain and the cognition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. to then start to make some decisions about what to do with that. Now, when we're in traumatic situations, or we feel suddenly um, afraid, and there is real danger present, we don't always have that ability to slow things down and respond with, you know, cognitions that sort of look at and connect to another and match with the feelings and make decisions. When we're in a traumatic situation or a sudden situation of fear, all those things happen in a nanosecond. And we're saying things or doing things that um, align in our body to help us survive. So we do what we do because we're looking for survival. When I was talking about the hierarchy a minute ago, um, people will say, oh, no, I never go to flock. I always go straight to fight. I know that about myself. And I will say, actually, you probably do in a very brief half a second, look to flock or look to flee. But if you're patterning and and your life experience says the only way I'm going to survive is if I fight. Then yeah, you're gonna you're likely your patterning is going to take you to fight pretty quick. Mm-hmm. If your with the way you survived was to flee, and flee can look a lot of ways. It can look like leaving a situation. It can also look like um, any addiction that takes us out of the situation, drinking so that we pass out. Oh, now we're out of this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Any uh, behavior that takes us out um, is maybe that's a person's patterning. And so for me, what I've challenged myself to do, because I was definitely in a fight pattern, lots of sarcasm, lots of snark, You know, lots of I didn't physically fight, but I would fight with words. And um, my healing journey has been that I now look to flock and have built up enough social connectedness with people I love and who love me that I can look to flock now before I go to fight. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. I still got some fight inside of me. Like I ain't (laughs) seen my stimulus check yet. So (laughs) I'm about to have it out with the IRS, (laughs) but you know, when I call, I, I will tell you my tone of voice will be kind and I will be seeking to flock with a person if I'm able to get them on the phone first Mm -hmm. right to get that handled. So it comes out in all these ways. It comes out when you know we're in interactions with people, but it can also come out when we're trying to call the IRS over something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, slow me down. No, I think that's so you know great. No, I, I want you to keep going.
0: <laughs> I just wanted to mention something as you were talking. I think for so many of us who did not have safety in flock growing mm-hmm, up, mm-hmm. that we passed flock much quicker. Yes, we go through that phase so much quicker to one yes. of these other stages, yep, for sure, because we do not have a pattern of safe flocking, or there was no one there, yes. or the people we could flock with hurt us, or yes. they weren't safe. And so I just think about that in this journey for so many people, right? One, this just came to my mind. It just it it because I've said this, um, especially at one point in time. But I think of um, think a woman who says, you know what, I just don't do females like that. You know, mm. I, you know, I just, me, I've always had friends. I've been good friends with guys. I don't like a lot of female friends. Right. And cause I, I have said that mm. and I realized because oftentimes, especially when it was groups of females, it was not safe for me. Mm-hmm. I did not have a felt sense of safety. I felt inadequate. I felt judged. That that's social unsafety. Mm-hmm. That's a lack of social safety. And so we will we pattern. Yes, I liked how you talked about patterning, but that patterning also comes with the story we make up in our mind about why. For sure. And and the story we make up around that pattern is very is never this is a survival pattern. That's right. unconscious. <laughs> right. That's not a story we make up. We make up that women are snarky. Yes. And they have attitudes, and I just don't want to be around them. And so what I try to help people do is let's take the story and let's reverse engineer it. Right. I know that is the story you're telling ourselves, but when we look at it through the lens of polyvagal and I, I, I say this, I was sitting in your training, Miss Amy, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when I had this sense of a lack of safety mm. uh, socially
1: mm-hmm. and
0: the, First thing that came to my mind was, and I know better. I snapped my fingers. and I Now, knew- hang
1: on. This was with somebody else in the training, not with me, just to be Correct. clear. This, yeah. Yes, just to be right. clear. This was not <laughs> with Amy. I was good, good, good.
0: You know, someone else came in the training and I instantly, you know, my the story came, con- the conscious part was, ooh, I don't like her. mm I don't like her. I don't even know what it is. I just want people to think to themselves. How many times have you said that? You know, Mm -hmm. I don't like that person. Mm." We we don't even have to know them. And it was through this training that I from that day forward, I stopped whenever the first thought because I want to say it's kind of automatic. I don't like her. Mm -hmm. I don't like him. It comes first. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned to do is take that and I say, what about this person is causing me to feel unsafe? Mm-hmm. what about the scenario is causing me to feel unsafe mm-hmm. and then I'm able to realize because with the I don't like them then I'm pointing all of my intention and focus on them mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with mm-hmm. them they walked in the room
1: right
0: <laughs> that's it right that is what they're guilty of they walked in a room and they were breathing right yeah so when I When I put my focus on them, I'm not focusing on the fact that I'm not experiencing safety and figuring out what I have to do with that. Go ahead.
1: Well, we jump to the story because we're uncomfortable with the body sensations. Mm -hmm. We're uncomfortable with the feelings. And so let me go up here and jump to the story. And stories either go, and for the most part, stories go in one of two ways. I don't like her. There's something wrong with her. And I'm going to spend a lot of time right now... going through all the things that are wrong with her Mm -hmm. or there's something wrong with me. Let me go through all the things that are wrong with me. And we go there in our heads and so many people spend so much time in their head about that. When what I, and you said reverse engineer, and I wonder if we do some of the same things, what I'll say is can we just take a pause in your story right here? And can you just take a breath And can we talk about what's happening inside of your body while you're telling me this story?
0: Yes, absolutely. Similar things. Yeah.
1: And then we're able to recognize and, and like you said, take the finger from being pointed, you know, at the person across the room. And instead of pointing the finger back at yourself, I encourage people like just place a hand on your sternum
0: or your sternum. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just, just place a hand either on your belly or your sternum or maybe both. And let's take a breath into this and see what what that's all about and what that has to tell us. Because that's where the message is. That's where, you know, you and I have said it to each other many times. My body don't lie.
0: (laughs) The body don't lie. Yes.
1: And so I'm going to pay attention to what this is. And I think what used to scare me when I was younger was that I didn't want to be a person who acted on my feelings all the time. I was taught that, you know, feelings not good, Mm -hmm. you know, ignore your feelings and don't be emotional and, and all those kinds of things. Um, And so I was afraid of them because I thought that my feelings would drive me to do um, things that weren't helpful for me. And what I'm realizing now is that these sensations and feelings are here to tell me something. And if I can slow myself down enough to pay attention to them, I can listen. And then it, it directs me in the right way. Feelings are like toddlers. So if you get a sense of being concerned and you ignore it, all of a sudden that feeling's coming back on you like Mm -hmm. some worry and then, if you ignore the worry, you're getting anxiety. And if you try to ignore the anxiety, you're getting panic. And the feeling will just get bigger until you pay attention to it. And if you can yes. breathe, <laughs> yes. And if you can bring yourself, you know, closer to this place of, wait a minute, like something's off. This is a little concern. It's not a big deal, but let me just check in and see what's going on here. Right. Yeah. When we can do that for ourselves, it's like slowing the roll down on the emotional reactiveness. You're but so you,
0: right. And oh, go ahead. Yeah. You, we can't
1: do that without that sense of feeling connected to other people. It, it's, it's, it really goes back to that basis. And that's the other piece of the polyvagal theory is that there's two branches in mammals. Uh, one branch goes into the torso and that's what gives us all these sensations of happiness or stress or, you know, anger or fear. The other branch comes up into our head and helps us hear tones and also speak certain tones of voice and how we hear Um, what can actually put us into, gosh, I'm going to come over here on the safe side of things, or I'm over here in the unsafe side of things. I'm not really sure why, but maybe it's the tone of voice somebody used with us that drives us to that place. How we hear also changes when we hear low tone sounds that um, indicate danger in the animalistic world, right? To think about a growl with an animal that is a threatening sound, if you know, if the dog growls at you, he's mm-hmm. telling you back off. Mm-hmm. So we retreat. Hopefully, it's the same with humans. When we hear those kind of growl, low tone sounds, we then become acutely attuned to hear more of that. We listen for more of that because we need to know how much on the defensive, how much. Um, unsafety or danger is out here, and then it becomes very hard to hear kind voices and nice tones of voice and so um, it's we move through this um, all day, every day, sort of swinging back and forth between uh, what we hear in terms of tone of voice, what we read on people's faces. This whole idea, and I fully support wearing masks, but seeing a lot of people in masks is going to put many people into the unsafe side of the world because we unconsciously read so much about a person by full facial (laughs)
0: looks. Yeah. Well, that brings me to kind of this part that I, I mean, we could talk literally. I
1: know we could. <laughs>
0: about this, right? so I'm going to just let go of the thing I was going to say last and we'll do it another time. It was so good. I mean, I just wanted to, you know, go deeper on something you said, but what I, what I want to come to is how necessary this information is, right? So you and I, we, uh, we met each other kind of through the training world, the trauma we world. Mm-hmm. And, we um we have connected in that way and a lot of who we train as of right now are people who are aware that they need some understanding of how trauma impacts people mm-hmm. in order to do their jobs and so we may train other clinicians we may train teachers Um, we're training people who are somewhere in kind of those spheres. Yes. But what is so important right now, it has always been this way, but what has been exacerbated by the pandemic is how this is information that literally everyone needs. Right. So when you were talking about the, how polyvagal, how the polyvagal theory tells us and explains to us that when our ability to hear tones Mm. is... I don't want to say compromised, but impacted by the tone we hear, right? So if we feel threatened, we're going to acutely be attuned to more threatening tones. Yes, and it instantly brought me to an example at a grocery store. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the <laughs> cashier rang something up wrong, and or a mistake in the computer, and the customer, the cashier can't fix it, and if how the cashier responds, right. To that customer and the customer says, I want to see your manager. Mm -hmm. Well, the manager comes, but if the customer is already in a heightened sense of fear Mm -hmm. or feels danger, no matter how that manager comes, right, they can come with a tone that's kind but that, the customer's ability to hear that is going to be impacted based on where they are, what yes. their central nervous system is doing. Yes. What that means is the grocery store needs to be trained on this. Yes. <laughs> they need to understand how this works, especially those who are managers and supervisors and who work in HR and who work in the customer service. I mean, everyone needs it. But people, I think won't don't realize that when they are girl banks need this because i have been more pissed off in banks <laughs> well okay, and here's the other thing place. is that
1: in what you described a person might like a manager might think oh i'm going to go with my very kind voice and i'm going to talk to them like this and and what they don't understand is that the customer cannot hear that so there is a level of having to meet people where they are. So you and I have talked about this with even with clients. If the client isn't ready to experience a deep sense of vulnerability, I can't take my voice to the place that's going to create that for them. It's not Mm -hmm. fair to them. So I have to meet them where they are sometimes with maybe you know, laughing at the joke that they might make before I challenge it, because I know what's under that joke is,
0: Uh you know,
1: something um, traumatic or difficult. It's, you become um, sort of skilled at knowing where to push and where to pull back. I tell this story a lot. There's a, um, my son plays soccer, pretty high level um, <laughs> soccer and there's one mom on the team who still speaks about and to the boys like they're three years old she uses a very high pitch voice to talk about the but you know she'll say oh look Sean just kicked the ball he just kicked the ball and I'm like yeah he's 17 like he's been <laughs> training to kick the ball since he was three that this and he he can't be responsive to that either because that's not where his head is. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: and it's, it misses the mark for me. So when I'm speaking to somebody who with the best of intentions is trying to be kind and supportive about something he's doing, I can't even hear it because it doesn't match anything else about the situation. It doesn't match the fact that we're on the sidelines with a bunch of sweaty, testosterone-filled, you know, 17, 18-year-old boys who are pounding it out out there. So it, it's, it's understanding and developing the skill of seeing where we are and who's around us and what their vibe is and what's going on with them and being able to match our tone of voice to that.
0: Absolutely. And and yeah. for some parts we're in where a lot of people are intuitive to a degree mm-hmm. about that and we'll do that and not realize it's happening, mm-hmm. you know, to the point back to customer service and the manager. Yes. They'll do their best to try to do that. But man, what this understanding could provide for them. Yes. You know, and, for and, sure. and being Having people just understand that this isn't for trauma experts or no. professionals, or this is how this is for parenting, yeah, this is for relationships, yes. romantic relationships, this is for friendships, yes. How many faith leaders need this information? Oh. Like, my god, okay, yeah. hold another podcast. We'll- right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the point is, you know, we all. Could benefit from this information because mm-hmm. it is the human experience. It's the mammal yes. experience, but it is the human experience that we're having. And I love that we can make it accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were talking about that in our counseling space, we definitely do that. But then we have to do it in our training space too. Yes. You have 80 to 100 people, you have to be able to understand collectively where people are, yes. but understanding that there are these individual needs. Of the collective yes. and how you are presenting and what you're doing. And so it's always for me as a person who is a trainer professionally, but I'm gifted in it, mm-hmm. that just knowing information does not mean you can stand effectively in front of a no. group of people. because and- the other
1: thing that <laughs> happens when you're training on trauma is the recognition that the majority of the people in the room are there as professionals (laughs) because they have experienced some kind of trauma and that's their drive to be here, to be in this world. And so as we're standing in front of them talking about trauma, the majority of them are getting triggered into their own trauma. And this ain't counseling. This is a training where we're trying to disseminate information so being able to sort of scale all of that, how do I, like you said, tend to the room, tend
0: to the individuals in the room and help them learn something. And help them learn something yeah. that can be, you know, implemented in their everyday lives and in their work. So, you know, I don't know that yet I've had an opportunity to say this, but this is no small thing that we do. No. You know, this is a huge thing. And and what I can say, and- I have so much respect for you as a trainer. Thank Um, you so much. immense. And what I know about those of us, you know, in our, in our crew and and that do (laughs) this, not, not excluding others, but I'm talking, this is not a small thing. Mm -mm. I think sometimes people look at it like, oh, that was a great training. And they thought that we just stand up there and we just talk. Mm -hmm. but there is so much that goes into understanding the nuance of the human experience and what needs to be done and not to be done and how to pivot and how to be flexible and how to do all of these things to meet the needs of the people there. So they can learn. It's like I say, with potty training, it (laughs) is not teaching a child how to go to the bathroom. Do not disrespect (laughs) my experience like that or yours for that matter. It is far more complex. And, you know, so it's just, helping people understand that when you do walk away from a training feeling, not just that you've learned something, but you felt held Mm -hmm. and you felt nurtured and you felt seen and you felt safe. Kudos to that trainer. Yes. Because we have all, I'm sure been in a training where we felt none of that. And we're like, I can't get that time back. So, you know, wanting to put out there that polyvagal theory and the understanding of it and how it is implemented in the regular lives of every human is a necessary understanding for every single area avenue of life and yes. now more than ever yes as we begin to reopen mm-hmm. whatever that means and whatever that's going to look like our society yes we are going to need this information more than ever because the central nervous systems of everyone are on high alert yes And, and, and all of these things from our tone of voice, our facial expressions, how they're hidden behind the mask, like Mm -hmm. you say, and all of these things are impacting how we are going to be able to engage with each other socially. And people need this information. Yes.
1: I heard uh, somebody talking about going um, for an OB visit recently, and she said, my, I was afraid my doctor was wearing a mask. I've had this many kids with the doctor. I've never seen him wear a mask before. And, and I, she didn't say I was afraid. She said, I felt uneasy. And it was the first time I had left the house to go to this appointment. And I saw people in masks and it, I realized like, oh my gosh, because you know what we associate people with masks. I mean, it's, you see it on TV all the time. They're coming to rob you. That's who wears masks. Mm -hmm. It's either Halloween and it's fun or funny, even if they're scary masks, or somebody's covering up because they have something to hide. Mm -hmm. So
0: we have this unconscious thing going on. And And I think to even add to that, I think another element may be more than I feel. Yes, you could be coming to hurt me, but I also get a felt sense of, you think I want to hurt you. Mm. And I think that is very, that's a, that's a lens that especially people who are marginalized Mm -hmm. and who have been criminalized Mm -hmm. across the history of our existence in this country, that can also be a felt sense. Yes, You're trying to protect yourself from me as if some, like I am going to hurt you Mm -hmm. either way, whether you think, you know, whether you're a danger to me or you think I'm a danger to you, it is still reeking.
1: Yeah. So this, yes. Yeah. The whole thing all the way around is, um, a hotbed for fear. And yes, it, I think it's going to be really important because for companies to be successful moving forward, they're, they're going to need to understand the basic reactions that, uh, people have. And, and these reactions happen unconsciously. They happen in our brainstem, which operates all the unconscious processes of our bodies. And it's only when we bring this information to our conscious awareness and begin to work with it, that we can then reshape how we respond and, and what we do in the world, both collectively and individually.
0: I love it. I love it. So, against everything that feels right to me, I'm going to start. I know. <laughs> um, And because, my goodness, one, I just love talking to you. You as well. Two, I just know this is beneficial for people Mm, who are listening. And so so. um, we will, this won't be the last time for sure. Um, But I think this is a good place to stop um, in, in this because we could go on and on for hours um, and probably we'll talk more after we stop recording. Um, (laughs) But to that point, um, I want you, can you tell my listeners and those who are listening how they can find you? and if If they are interested in what you are offering regarding training around polyvagal theory, or they just have questions, or they just want to reach out, uh, what is a way that people can get in touch with you? Sure. So people can find
1: me through my website, rootedcompassion.com. They can email me at amy at rootedcompassion.com. I am on Facebook and Instagram again with rootedcompassion.com. I will say that, um, my webpage is there, but it is under construction. So, um, please go, please reach out, please email and know that more is coming in terms of information and, um, information that's fun to look at. (laughs) as we get the website built yeah
0: yes so of course we will have that information in our show notes so that you have access to that and um a little bit out of order than I normally do but I don't want to let you go without you telling us some kind of fun little known or interesting fact about Amy um just to give kind of a more well-rounded picture of who you are as a person
1: oh gosh So I disclosed some, the the one thing I usually tell is my fun fact is that I'm the youngest of 10 kids. Um, I will say what's been interesting to me during the pandemic is that I started sewing, just hand sewing different things and I can't stop. I am finding so much comfort in, um, I guess, sort of handiwork in terms of either cooking and and really going back to how my mom taught me to cook, which was from scratch, you chop that up yourself. You, you know, Mm. you kind of make things like that. And, um, and just sitting down and creating for me, it's through sewing through doing some really cool retro embroideries or um, I'm starting to draw my own. So um,
0: there's my nerdy little, fact love that <laughs> well keep creating sister keep creating amy i want to thank you so much for thank joining you. me today and having such rich conversation um just about something that i think is very very important and it, polyvagal theory is increasing um my understanding of it is increasing and in how mm. I utilize it, but really yeah. just going back to what you stated as your labor of love, which is walking alongside people to help them feel safe, mm-hmm. having a felt sense of safety that they can then move forward in their life to be able to create more safety. Yeah. So I thank you so much for being there thank here you. with me. You're welcome to all of my listeners. I want to thank you so much for tuning in Uh, If you want to reach out to me, you have any questions, topics, suggestions, or just want to get in touch with me. You can find my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. I'm on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget we have our YouTube channel where every Thursday we put out a Therapy Thursday video. And as always, please subscribe, like, and share our podcast. Give us that five-star rating so we keep moving up because we have great content and even better guests. Until we connect again, you all be well.